I will trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Okay, so welcome to episode 13 of the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. My name is Jared Dean, joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, great to see you. And you, Jared. So we have interviews coming up today with Brian McGrath, Dr. Katie Hayward, Professor Kevin O'Rourke, and a bit of a soundbite with David McWilliams as well. But let's recap. Where are we with Brexit? Paul, what's the crack? Are we on the brink? What's happening? No one knows. Still, <laughs> Still. it's less than 100 days to the UK leaving the European Union, and we still don't know what the outcome is. Mm. The situation is that the withdrawal agreement that was agreed between Theresa May and the European Commission has not been approved by the House of Commons. And so that means there are three possible options in terms of how we go forward. It is possible that Theresa May's uh, withdrawal agreement will be agreed by the House of Commons. It's up for a vote in January. But the other two possibilities are, if nothing else happens, we just crash out without an agreement at all with the European Commission. And the third option, possibly, is that we'll have what's called the People's Vote, which is the second referendum. And just to explain why we are here, Mm -hmm. there isn't support for Theresa May within the Conservative Party. She's got around 100 MPs that voted against her continuing as leader of the Conservative Party. And the other parties in the House of Commons are not supporting the withdrawal agreement. She is basically playing this high-risk game of poker, leaving things to the last possible moment so that you are faced as an MP with either supporting her and the withdrawal agreement and perhaps the not best of all worlds Uh outcome or else simply the potential disaster of a no-deal outcome. So it's a game of high-risk poker. Okay. And they've started some contingency planning in the, in the case of the crash out as well. Just some information came out about that in the last day or so. That's right. Um, the, uh, the government has put 3,500 troops on standby to deal with emergencies that might come about as a result of leaving without a deal. And what we also know is that the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, and also the, the leader of the House of Commons, Andrea Leatham, two of the most senior cabinet ministers, have both spoken about a managed no deal. Uh, which is basically saying, yeah, we go without an agreement, but we'll manage the situation. Business leaders, it has to be stressed, say that is just complete nonsense and you can't have a managed no deal. So no. the business leaders are getting pretty upset about the situation. The other option, even the withdrawal agreement, there's, there's, there's holes and gaps in that as well. That's right. There's still things that uh, people are not going to be happy about. Well, earlier podcasts, we discussed with human rights activists about the fact that they were confident that despite leaving the European Union, the European Health Insurance Card, the EHIC that used to be called the E111s, mm. they were confident that that would still be in place, not simply for Irish citizens in Northern Ireland, but actually for all citizens in the United Kingdom. But in fact, that's not in the withdrawal agreement. And as things stand, people in the UK will not be able to use E111s, the EHICs. Uh, however, uh, Tishuk Leavaraka has said that he hopes it will be possible to negotiate for Irish citizens living in Northern Ireland to continue to use EHICS. But as of yet, that is not the case. And the other thing which you need, need to say is that there are, there are other problems. Uh, firstly, it is almost certain that UK citizens, possibly not uh, Irish citizens living in Northern Ireland, we don't know about that, but it looks as if UK citizens will have to pay a £7 visa charge to visit continental Europe. Not the Irish Republic, but to have a visa to go to countries like Germany and France in the future. Mm. And of course, the other thing which is not included, if there is a no deal exit, 
is that the peace program is not guaranteed beyond 2020. So unless we have a managed arrangement, uh, the withdrawal agreement or something similar to that, or possibly staying within the European Union, it looks as if the peace program might not continue beyond 2020. Okay, not good for a, a lot of our community listeners, community organisations, delivering peace programmes. Immigration has again uh, come up as an issue. Yeah, which is a bit odd really, because uh, on balance it would seem as if the, 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 the major reason why people voted for Brexit um, was because of concerns about immigration, in particular European Union immigration, and that was certainly a major factor in the reason why people voted uh, by a majority to, to leave the European Union. But we're now getting closer to understanding what the government's new policy on immigration will be. Uh, Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, has indicated there won't in future be a target for managed migration coming in. And it looks as if there will still be high levels of immigration. Theresa May has indicated that there will still be a target. So there's a difference of opinion between the Home Secretaries who are responsible for the migration policy and the Prime Minister who oversees it all. And... What we also know is, and this is very, this is something that business is very unhappy with, is that it looks as if people will have to apply for 12-month periods of time to be able to work here if they're not uh, UK or Irish. Mm. And that means a significant additional burden and cost to businesses to employ people from other countries. So one of the things that will be necessary for businesses to do is to increase the training of people in order to have the skill levels that we need within the UK after Brexit. Right. Okay. Oh, I don't know about you, but I would love a bit of clarity in some of these issues. We've been talking about these same issues since we started the podcast. It is extremely strange. I mean, it's a terrible reflection on the quality of government in the UK that we're less than three months, we're around three months away uh, mm. from leaving the European Union, and there's so much uncertainty about what happens. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the uh, locally within the North West... The, the organisation, the business that faces the biggest uncertainty is literally the most cross-border business there is, which is the foil port. And what we have got here is an interview with Brian McGrath, who's the chief executive of foil port, about how a business that actually is located on both sides of the border, with customer base on both sides of the border, how they cope. And he's also, of course, just taken over as president of the Londonary Chamber of Commerce. It's a reflection more on how our customers that um, come in and distribute their commodities uh, in, across the border, you know, how they'll also deal with things. So about 40% of our trade comes in from Europe. Um, and of that, about 50% of it finds its way across the border. So we're serving a cross-border uh, agri-sector uh, primarily, animal feeds, fertilizers, um, also oil and coal. So um, 30% of our workforce also comes in from Donegal every day. So it's an extremely integrated uh, operation in terms of, uh, you know, the border and, you know, the, in a sense, the, from a business point of view, the irrelevance of the border. Now, in the last few days, the probability of a no-deal outcome seems to have risen. I mean, how have you been able to prepare for a no-deal outcome? I suppose as far as no-deal preparations go, we've been working on this for some considerable time. Um, uh, it's not a scenario that we particularly uh, relish. Um, but as far as ports go, actually, uh, FOIL is probably one of the better positioned ports in the British Isles because of the space and capacity that we have here, um, that should it be necessary to build 
uh, warehouses or additional uh, holding capacity for customs checks, for instance, we could certainly do that. Um, in reality, though, the um, additional bureaucracy is more likely to be um, online activity that ships agents and people like that will have to do. And it's whether or not the income tax people in the HMRC can actually uh, deal with their own new requirements. And in terms of those uh, potential challenges, then I guess the two-year interim period, or the you know a bit short of two years, that I suppose is the period in which the the, the certification re, uh, regulation stuff can be sorted out. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, shipping is a, a worldwide industry, and around another forty percent of the trade that we do comes in from the rest of the world. Um, shipping companies and ourselves are used to handling commodities from outside the EU. Um, the, the bigger consideration for us is really that the additional bureaucracy. Uh, really affects your ultimately affects your competitive competitiveness, and that's where it finds its expression. And at that point, then, if we were uh, too expensive to trade through, um, then potentially these commodities uh, could go elsewhere, and uh, we could lose trade. So that that's ultimately the the risk for us. And presumably, that competitive challenge wouldn't come from other ports within the north. They'd come from ports within the south. So, where where would you be competing going on the west coast further south? Then, well, I mean, it, 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 the 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 biggest uh, risk, I suppose, although it's it's quite a on the face of it, it doesn't look like such a big risk. But Shannon Foynes would be if we were to arc uh, sort of south and west and they were to, to arc sort of north and east, we'd meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Um, the question comes whether or not uh, facilities in Donegal, for instance, could be developed beyond where they currently are. All of this takes money, but a lot of this could be down to political considerations. And a lot of this, again, comes down to uncertainty. So if we hadn't had the Brexit question around us uh, and around you, would your business have been different in any way in the last two years? We have remained steadfastly uh, upbeat and optimistic about, the, firstly, the ability to deal with whatever's put in front of us, but that um, maybe in a foolish way, we've always felt that there would be a deal done, even if we were to leave uh, the, the European Union. Our corporate position has always been to be in support of the customs union and the single market, uh, essentially because of where we find ourselves located. I mean, that's a business analysis. It's not a political one. And I think that some of the uh, tensions that have been building up in the wider civic community has been that people are trying to overlay political analysis over those that businesses are doing, and it's not particularly helpful. And of course, there are some businesses in the Northwest that say if it hadn't been for Brexit, they would have invested more yeah. productively. I mean, that's not the case with yourselves, uh, of it. Not, uh, I mean, there's been an element of, uh, I would say, additional caution. Um, I suppose for us, to some extent, we're insulated from it. Um, but I do know of, of, of plenty of businesses that are either either hedging their bets or have uh, postponed investment decisions. So it has been a two-year diversion. I mean, we're in the periphery of the periphery here. Um, we struggle with competitiveness. And, and all we're doing is this uh, sort of constant uh, European uh, sort of infighting that we have. I mean, I think businesses want clarity and you'll not get investment until you get that. But in terms of clarity, while we're still struggling with the sense of whether there'll be a second referendum or whether there'll be a no-deal outcome, even if there is no-deal outcome or what's called a no-deal outcome, the probability is there will be some type of deal that will give us some type of certainty. 
I suppose the only problem is no deal means crash out because you don't get the two-year transition. Mm. Uh, the other thing that I, I think sometimes is missed is what happens to the markets, what happens to currency. Because we're paying 30% of our staff in sterling who need to convert that into euros. So in a really practical sense, this is impacting people uh, where it hurts in their pockets. And have you had people that leave because of that? Because I know, you know, as you say, people who are living in Donegal and earning in sterling, they've suffered a real hit, especially their ability to repay their mortgages. Well, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you have a... I suppose lurking in the background is a really buoyant and re-emerging Dublin economy. So we know that there are a lot of people uh, taking jobs up in Dublin, whether it's in construction or whether it's in accountancy or whether it's in services industry. Um, And people go where they feel secure, so there will be an impact. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the Northwest, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. Great to hear from Brian there, some really interesting insights. Um, you also had the opportunity uh, and the next interview to interview Dr. Katie Hayward. What was it that you asked Katie about? Yeah, um, Katie Hayward was giving a talk in Belfast, uh, which I attended, where she was talking about seeing Brexit uh, in context. And she was talking specifically about the context of Brexit, given the global political changes that are taking place at the moment. I think it's impossible not to see it in terms of the rise of populism. Uh, There's a lot of paradoxes and tensions in populism that are really exemplified in Brexit, I think. So an emphasis upon being able to control immigration and and borders, for example, and yet at the same time wanting freedom of movement of your own people. Similarly, criticism of the media and yet exploitation of the power that the media brings you in terms of getting messages out quickly and changing those messages Um, and of course criticism of big business uh, money and wealth and yet at the same time very much funded by big business and and, um, private wealth. Now we're speaking on a day when we really don't have much idea what's going to happen because it coincides with Theresa May's no confidence vote within the Conservative Party and that's likely to be followed by no confidence vote in the House of Commons so everything's up in turmoil I mean the terrible question but what do you think is going to happen in the end? It's hard to answer. I mean, I have to say, having followed this closely for a long time, I've always been quite confident that we would get a deal. And I have to say that the withdrawal agreement that we've come up with, or that they've come up with, actually has a lot... um, that is in fa- that you know to to speak in favour of it. Um, it's a compromise, so of course you're going to have people who aren't happy with it. Very few people are completely happy with it. Um, but I thought it was workable and manages to try and speak to the hard Brexiteers and the political declaration, as well as of course concerns, particularly around the Irish border. That said, it all comes down to what happens in the House of Commons, and it's probably quite appropriate that it is so because wasn't this originally very much to do with tensions in the Tory party and a, and a means by which David Cameron thought he could uh, quell those tensions, speaking to populist narratives at the same time. 
So perhaps it's appropriate that actually it all comes back to the Tory party and what Theresa May manages to do tonight and then, of course, in the weeks, weeks coming. Underlying issue, which comes back to your point about populism, is that the, uh, Theresa May has attempted to achieve a compromise between two positions that perhaps can't be compromised. You're either outside the European Union or you're in it, and actually what she's trying to do is be somewhere between the two, but perhaps just doesn't work. Let me run past you my own theory or prediction, which is I think that what there could be is a falling out within the Conservative Party and a falling out within the Labour Party and that somehow the, the, the right wing of the Labour Party plus the left wing of the Conservative Party come together to agree something very much like the, the May proposals. What, what do you think? Um, I like the optimism or the sort of <laughs> rationale behind your suggestion. Um, it would be logical, yes, because, of course, if it's going to get through, uh, it's going to have to require some sort of finding of centre ground or common ground. Um, and actually, when it comes down to it, there is a lot of agreement between the, the parties, when they, or between MPs, when they face the reality of having a difficult choice to make. Say this is a compromise, no one's going to be completely happy. Um, so if the withdrawal agreement gets through, it will mean people um, crossing the floor to, to vote with the other parties. So yes, that sounds like a, a plausible, <laughs> rational suggestion. <laughs> yeah. The Highwell podcast Brexit Focus, funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this program and stream it for free on SoundCloud.com, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share, and enjoy. Following on from Katie, then Professor Kevin O'Rourke also talked about Brexit in a, in a different kind of context than we might be used to. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the other person on the platform of that uh, conversation was uh, Kevin O'Rourke, who is actually uh, the leading academic analyst of what's happened in terms of the transformation of the Irish economy. But on this occasion, his conversation was mostly about seeing. Brexit in the context of the history of the United Kingdom and how trade wars have broken up the both uh, difficulty caused difficulties both within the Tory party and the Liberal party historically and uh, this is his take on what's happened uh, in terms of Brexit today. Well trade policy has given rise to splits particularly in the Tory party periodically ever since 1846 maybe reflecting the Tory party's original roots, which were to represent uh, large landowners. Uh, That constituency would have been naturally protectionist, but then there were others uh, by the middle of the 19th century who favoured trade, and so there was a big bust-up about whether they should move to unilateral free trade. In 1846, uh, there was a similar bust-up in the uh, 1880s, uh, when the Fair Trade League uh, argued that there should be a move away from unilateral free trade to what they called fairer trade. So it seems as though the Tory party historically has a hard time managing international trade, but they, 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 because I suppose it, it relates not only to questions of economics, but to questions of Britain's political relationships with the rest of the world. And those two things can sometimes be difficult to, to square away together. 
Um, to, to try and put it in different words, would it be fair to say that historically within the Conservative Party there have been three tensions? One is to protect the interests of those countries that were historically part of the empire, which you had, they felt they had very strong cultural links. And then you've got the interests of the landed aristocracy and protecting the interests of the, the, those ownership of assets. And then you've got the, this ideological demand for free trade and, and free movement of trade. I think that's yeah. I think that's basically right. Yeah. So so in the middle ninth century it would have been people who believed in trade versus the old agricultural interests. Now those agricultural interests become much less important with time. But then you still have people into the twentieth century who who favour uh, less than full free trade because they want to be particularly close to the countries of the empire or later the British Commonwealth. And in a sense, perhaps that's similar to what's happening today to an extent within parts of the ruling establishment, those different concerns and different interests. Yeah, it's, it's, it's related without being identical. So, yeah. so I suppose the point is that probably the, the freest practical trade that you could have today would be a trade policy that involved your membership of, of the EU uh, uh, to be in a customs union single market with your closest uh, neighbour. But that necessarily involves making a political choice for Europe and I suppose there are some conservatives who would like to make different political choices. And of course the economists, the group that call themselves economists for free trade or economists for Brexit, have been very much driven by the idea of an absolute as far as possible free trade world as they see it, reducing regulation as part of that outcome. Well, so they say, but the practical impact of their policies would be in the first instance to raise trade barriers between the UK and the EU and to raise trade barriers between the UK and all of the countries with which the EU has, uh, has, has done trade deals. So it would actually involve the wholesale disintegration of, of, of many markets that previously had been extremely well integrated. So I'll, I'll believe it when I, when I see it. And so just to finish off, you grabbed a very quick word with David McWilliams as well. Yeah, David McWilliams is an interesting guy. He is someone who makes economics sound interesting, which is always a good That's thing. Topical, and yeah. he's, he's, he, he has also just been giving uh, a talk in Northern Ireland about his new book, Renaissance Nation. And uh, he gave us a pithy summary of what Brexit is. An act of aggression against the global economic system. And it has... It's dripping with delusions of sovereignty. Okay, thanks very much to David there. Um, and thanks to our funders, as always, the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland, who fund this podcast through their Brexit Dialogue Fund. Paul, thank you very much again for your insight and your hard work that goes into this Brexit podcast. Much appreciated. Thanks to D. Curran for production support. And as always, Paul's monthly Brexit blog is available in the Derry Journal, both online and in the hard copy paper. People might even want to go out and buy such a thing. So thanks for listening, and we'll be in touch in the new year, hopefully with a wee bit more clarity on some of these issues. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell T.